Now, when I was doing my fourth year of study at Bible College, Moore College, where lots of ministers train, um, we had a lecture about Anglican stipends, which is basically the salary package of an Anglican minister. So basically, we had a lecture on how much I was going to get paid the next year. Um, so they had this guy come in, and he's talking about stuff, and, and I already knew a little bit about all of it, so I wasn't listening that keenly. But then he, um, he, he was a minister in one of the churches in Sydney, and he, was, he started to share some stories about conversations he would have with people before he employed them. Uh, and some of the stuff he was saying, I wasn't so sure that I agreed with or that I liked the sound of, and so I started listening a bit more, and I started to find it was actually quite challenging, some of the things he was saying. Now, I think, I think, this is an assumption, most people, when they first make the decision to go into ministry, they're not doing it for the money, so to speak. But some of the stuff he was suggesting said, was saying that that might be the case. And so I started to feel challenged and asking all these questions, what am I doing this for? Why am I going into ministry? Am I doing it for comfort? Am I doing it for prosperity? Am I doing it for money? Now, you know, ministers, we're not walking around with Rolexes on our wrists, or well, some maybe on TV and stuff might be, but most are not walking around with Rolexes on their wrists and Bentleys in their garage. But he was really posing this question, why are you doing it? And his, his kind of mic drop moment is when he said this. He said, you need to ask yourselves, if you could, would you do it for free? Don't go into ministry if you wouldn't. That's what he said. And I was like, Phew. oh gosh, what am I doing? You know, I think I'd already said yes to the job here. I've already got a job lined up. And I don't know. You know, it's crisis moment. But what a confronting, a confronting thing to say to a room of people that are literally about to graduate. We're focusing, as I said, 17 to 19 tonight. And I think we have one of the most graphic and almost off-putting pictures in the book of Revelation, where we have wealth and the evil that it can produce personified as this luxurious prostitute who is incredibly enticing on the outside, but is actually a bloodthirsty whore who makes all who interact with her drunk on wealth, and she's destined for judgment, and those who interact with her destined for it as well. Today's passage, I think, actually is huge for us in, in our culture. I think there are probably three quite confronting passages in Revelation for us in our culture. The first one was way back in chapters 2 and 3 when we meet the church in Laodicea. The second was, I think, last week where we meet that second beast who entices us to compromise. And I think this is the third one, the prostitute who allures us with the promiscuity of wealth and power. I think this passage makes us ask this question, what wealth are we pursuing? What or which wealth are we pursuing? The wealth that the prostitute entices us with is futile, but God provides a better wealth. He provides eternal wealth. Three points for us today. We're going to start, as I said, in chapter 17, looking at the danger of first impressions the danger of first impressions. Uh, then chapter 18 and the call to flee from the promiscuity of wealth. And then finally, chapter 19, we're going to look at the better wealth that God provides. Will you join me as I pray before we get into that first point? 
Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise at the start of Revelation that those who read this will be blessed. Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we continue to work through this final book of your word. Father, we pray this morning that you might transform our hearts, help me to speak clearly and faithfully, and that we might appreciate and long for the better wealth that you offer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to walk through the first part of chapter 17 now, verses 1 to 8. But just before chapter 17, we're not going to focus on these chapters, but we have the seven bowls of God's judgment, and they're poured out by seven angels. And it's the final kind of cycle of seven that we have in Revelation. We've seen a few up until this point. It's similar, but a more intense camera angle of the judgment that God is bringing. And then chapter 17 starts with one of those angels who poured out a bowl, proclaiming the, pu- the punishment of this prostitute who sits by the waters. And they're the, then they're the kings of the earth, and they're committing adultery with this prostitute. And the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. We get this graphic picture, right? It's a graphic picture of, promise, of this prostitute sitting by many waters... Uh, seducing and sleeping with many kings and intoxicating everyone with her adulteries. It's a graphic and promiscuous picture of infidelity. And then after the angel has announced this judgment upon the prostitute, John is taken to the wilderness or the desert. He's taken away. Now, the desert in the Old Testament represented various things, temptations and trials, but also temporary security and safety from harm. It's a place where people could flee to be safe, where God takes his people to be free from slavery, but it's not forever, it's a temporary safety from Egypt until they're in the land. The picture is that John is kind of likely being spiritually protected by this angel from the allure of this prostitute. Now, after he's taken to the wilderness, he sees a woman, which I think is the same prostitute. We get We get that idea from verse 5 where she's named as the great prostitute or the mother of prostitutes. But now she's riding a beast, the rider of Danny the dragon. Well, it's not a dragon, it's a beast, but anyway, close. She's riding this beast, seven heads, ten horns, and it's the same beast, one of the two beasts that we met last week. It's the first of the two that we met last week who has that fatal wound uh, on it. Verse 4 then gives us the picture of this prostitute. She's dressed in colors of wealth and royalty, scarlet and purple. She's glittering with gold. She's got precious jewels and she has a cup which is filled with the abominable things, the passage tells us, and the filth of her adulteries. Then verse 5, we get her name, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And she's drunk with the blood of God's people. Full-on picture, graphic picture. It's a picture of a woman who appears rich and luxurious, who appears appealing, and yet she's seducing the world into sin and and is intoxicating herself with the work of the first beast. If you remember from last week, the first beast was the one who bullied God's people, who persecuted through uh, murder and imprisonment. And she's getting drunk from the, the work of that beast. And what's interesting is John's first impression of this woman. It says that John is astonished. 
And when we read that, I think the angel's decision to move him to this wilderness to, to kind of possibly to protect him makes a lot of sense. He's astonished. He's drawn in by the picture that he is seeing. That Greek word that gets translated as astonished, it can mean amazed, but it can also mean perplexed. There's a sense where John is intrigued by what he's seen. He's drawn in, but he's also confused because there is a serious allure and enticement. There's luxury and appeal, but at the same time, she's horrifying. The sense of the angel's question that, that the angel asks John, why are you astonished, is cautionary. John, why are you so astonished? Why are you drawn in? And I think the first alarm bell should now be ringing for us too. Because I think when I first read it, and it might be easy when we first read this, to be drawn in by all the horrifying detail that's there. Whoa, full on. But whatever John is looking at, whatever he really sees, and he's written a lot of it down for us, obviously, intrigues him. And that is because the appearance is one of seduction. He's drawn in to what this prostitute is on about. Now, prostitution in Roman culture around the time, it, would be, it could be divided into three categories. You would have the courtesans who would work for the elite, for the kings. They would be beautifully dressed, luxurious. They'd be very well off, probably self-employed, very successful. And then there were those who kind of worked in your day-to-day -day brothels who would be working in poorer conditions. They would be working for someone else, but they wouldn't be as bad, as worse off, as the third category, who would be slaves or people just working in taverns and the, the, the dirty streets. Now, the language used to describe the prostitute in our passage actually captures language that describes all three of those kind of categories. Here is a woman successful, well-off, luxurious, but behind the glamour is the horror of the dirty street taverns, the drunkenness, and that is the reality behind most prostitution. And I think this is really how sin works. It looks good. It looks appealing. It looks like something we want to be drawn into, but the reality is horrifying. We can't be seduced by the first impression of sin, the danger of first impressions. Now, after the angel asks John why he is astonished, it starts to give this reality. It gives us an introduction into the reality of this beast and this prostitute, which then is expanded on through chapter 18, which we'll get to. The beast is first pictured for us in verse 8, and it's described actually in similar language to how God is described way back in chapter 4, verse 8, where God is the one who was and is and is to come. This beast is described as the beast who once was, now is not, and will come up to go to destruction. In the passage last week, we saw Satan and two beasts, and they're presenting themselves as a false trinity, almost as false God. And, and they've, in doing so, they have consigned themselves to judgment. They've consigned themselves to destruction. The reality behind what John is seeing is that this beast will be judged. And not only that, it tells us that those who are not in the book of life are those who are astonished by the beast and its rider. 
This is the exact same word that John is described to be feeling, this astonishment. And so this warning is made overtly clear to John. The reality behind what's going on is destruction. And if you are, if you are drawn in with your astonishment, you are heading down that same path. The ones who are not in the book of life are the ones who will receive the judgment of the beast. The reality behind seduction is destruction. So what does that call for? What does all this horror and graphic imagery call for? Well, John says it calls for wisdom. Verse 9 of 17. Wisdom, discernment, understanding. You see, the danger of astonishment and seduction of power and wealth is to be combated with wisdom. Living rightly, in the midst of the world. And in order to do that, we need to have a grip on reality. We need to have a grip on what is really going on behind this picture. That's why we have to beware of first impressions. We have to hold everything up against what the Bible tells us is real and true. And we get a glimpse of that reality in verse 14, and it is the theme that we keep coming back to in Revelation, and that the book of Revelation keeps screaming out at us, the Lamb wins. That's the glimpse of reality we get in chapter 17. The Lamb wins. Chapter 18 and 19 then give us insight into what that wisdom actually looks like. What do we then do with that knowledge of reality that the the Lamb wins? Well, chapters 18 and 19. And I think it tells us that wisdom looks like running, getting out of there, fleeing. This is our second point now. Flee from the promiscuity of wealth. You come with me to 18, chapter 18, verse 4 to 8. This is what those verses say. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will, be, will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Just before these verses, the chapter starts with an announcement of Babylon's downfall, Babylon's judgment. Babylon and the prostitute are synonymous. She has become the dwelling place of demons, a haunt for impure spirits, unclean birds and detestable animals. Now, when I was reading this, I had absolutely no idea what a haunt was. Maybe that's just because I'm young and ignorant, I don't know. But I think a word that can help capture, capture what the Greek is saying is the word lair. This is a place where these unclean and detestable creatures find their home and safety. Then verse 3 gives the reason for Babylon's downfall. It's the intoxicating of her promiscuity that has caused her downfall. It is the allure of her evil and the perpetrating of her sensualities that means she's going to be judged and will fall. Now, until this point, I don't know if I've done this well, but I've tried to deliberately leave ambiguous all these kind of sensual references about this prostitute. What is the passage talking about with all this language of adultery and promiscuity? 
But I think verse 3 gives us an insight. Because I don't think it's talking about sexual deeds or sexual immorality. They, they might be included in some of the things that, that are going on. But ultimately, it's talking about idol worship. Participation in, in Rome with the imperial cult. And ultimately, it's for the end, it's for the purpose of success and wealth. It's com- compromising on the true God to do whatever you want, to whatever you need, to gain success and wealth. The adultery is the worship of false gods in order to attain power, in order to attain wealth, in order to attain success. And it's summed up by the boast of Babylon in verse 7, when the prostitute says, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow and I will never, I will never mourn. That is the boast of the wealthy. I am number one. I am safe. I am always happy. What a fallacy. What a lie. I don't know if you've ever watched some of those new, newish Netflix documentaries that have come out. They're kind of like those series that replace a movie documentary. You have a series length, different episodes. There was one called FIFA Uncovered, which was where the most wealthy and powerful people in soccer, in football around the world, were just corrupting governments and getting away with whatever they want to earn more and more wealth. We're number one. We're the most powerful. We can do whatever we want. There was another one about a guy named Jeffrey Epstein. I think he's probably got a lot more airtime in other places as well. One of the most wealthy guys on the planet and used all that wealth and power to not only commit horrific crimes, but bully people away from uh, uh, persecuting, not persecuting, uh, prosecuting him. The boast of the wealthy isn't just for the extremely wealthy though those people who feel like they can use all their power and wealth to get away with anything. But I think we're susceptible to it as well. I'm better than someone with less. I can buy my way out of the problems I'll face. The more I acquire, the happier I'll be. But the outcome of the boast of the prostitute is in verse 8, and it's judgment. In one day, Babylon will be consumed by fire because it is the mighty Lord who judges her. So what does God tell us to do in the face of all this? Flee. Get out. If we go back to verses 4 and 5, he says, uh, the, the angel says this, or the voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Get out. Otherwise, you're going to share in her judgments because her sin is enormous, piled up all the way to heaven. Then what follows verse 8, we get three groups who are like onlookers of the destruction of this city. They're watching Babylon burn. And I actually think in a lot of ways, this is where the rubber hits the road for us today. There's these three woes. uh, And and they're of the woes of the people who actually 
don't heed that call to flee, who don't heed that call to get out. They might be watching from afar, but each group is in cahoots with Babylon. They've all got a partnership with Babylon that they are depending on. These are those that way back in chapter 7 are intoxicated by the adulteries of the prostitute. They have no control because they have been sucked into her sins and they are obsessed. They are obsessed with the wealth that she offers. And so when she burns, they mourn. We've got to get out because otherwise we'll become the intoxicated mourners that we see from verse 9 onwards. For the sake of time, what we're going to do is just focus on one of those three groups. We're going to focus on the middle group called the merchants, verses 11 to 17. Now what we're seeing in this group is a bunch of people who are making their money selling all sorts of luxury goods to, to Babylon. But they mourn because the luxury of Babylon is gone. It's wiped away. Their mourning arises because they can't make wealth from luxury anymore, but also because they're going to miss the luxury itself. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Their mourning is about the loss of this luxury. These are goods. They've been, they've been selling goods uh, that wealth purchases. The goods that adorn the wealthy, the luxury that drapes from their shoulders. And all of it's gone. We need to be careful, I think, when we, when we read about these merchants, not to be mourners like them. Because we are in such a culture of materialism. Materialism, stuff, matters more. The tangible matter, stuff, matters more than anything else. The merchants, their wealth is associated with material possessions. Now for us, this looks like so many things. The clothes we wear, the cars we buy, the houses we live in, the holidays we go on, the gadgets we have, whatever we eat. Our culture, we know it, it's obsessed with stuff. Stuff matters more. I read that up to a hundred billion new garments are made every year and that there is 92 million tons of textile waste every year. 85 million cars are made every year. This is globally, by the way. Every year. I mean, if it was just in Australia. Apparently, most people on average in the world upgrade their cars every eight years. So that means every time you upgrade your car, 700 million cars have been made. But it's not just represented in those huge figures, right? I'm sure we could all, maybe you could name more figures, maybe you've done that sort of research or whatever, maybe you could name all those sorts of things, but it's represented in our hearts too. And I think we feel it most acutely in those moments where we get a little more money, promotion, change of workplace, and we get a pay rise with that change of workplace, a higher salary. Maybe an inheritance comes in work bonuses or a business that you own grows, those moments where our income goes up a bit, suddenly the decisions about what are we going to spend this money on, they come into view. Marin and I literally just went through one of those phases of life. I went from a full-time college student to earning a full-time wage. We've gone from making decisions with savings about how we're going to survive the next few months to basically saying, oh, we've got money we can do with what we want now. 
what are we going to do with this extra money? And materialism, I think, comes at us something fierce in those moments. All the temptation comes, oh, we've got that little bit extra more now, what are we going to do with it? But I also think it's evident in our jealousy, in our moments of jealousy. I like what they have. Maybe that looks like a nice holiday. Oh, I wish I could go to that location. I wish I could just afford that size house. I think a big one is lifestyle. I want that lifestyle. I wish I could afford to do what they do. I wish I had whatever it is. The pinch of jealousy reveals the materialism in our hearts. But it's interesting, because I think if we look closely at this passage, it's not necessarily warning us about how we spend our money. It's not necessarily warning about what, what you buy or the stuff you spend your money on. It's actually what drives us to grow wealth. What's actually driving us to grow wealth. The merchants mourn because of the loss of their ability to produce wealth, to selling these goods to people. Yes, it is, it is the loss of the luxury of the prostitute as well, but, but they want their, their pursuit of wealth is gone as well. So the question for us is, is our pursuit of wealth and income to satisfy a certain desire? Are we trying to get more money to satisfy a certain desire? materialistic desire? What's our motivation for growing wealth? Not just what we spend our wealth on. Is it to satisfy a certain lifestyle? Is it to get those things that we've always wanted and desired? The house, the cars, the holiday, whatever. Because once you get it, what comes next? I reckon when we're intoxicated by the promiscuity of luxury, there's always something that comes next. And that tells us what our motivation for wealth is. We're always looking for the thing that comes next. So what happens when we watch the luxury we have go up in smoke? When the thing that drives your pursuit of wealth goes up in flames, what's going to happen to you? The merchants mourn because they can't sell the luxuries anymore. All their goods have gone down with Babylon. Can you live without? If you could, would you do it for free? Could we live without the car we've wanted, the house we've dreamed on, the trip we want to go on, the clothes we wear? Could we live without? Revelation is giving us the reality of what is going to happen for those who pursue wealth in, with an obsession that everything depends on it. It's going to be judged. Babylon is going to go up in smoke. The pursuit of wealth is a futile pursuit and God is saying, flee from it. Run, get out of Babylon. Babylon. I was chatting with a friend this week who shared with me their story in becoming a Christian. They're in their early 30s, <clears throat> excuse me, a reasonably successful lawyer, partner in a firm, firms growing more and more, getting bigger and bigger, and they had a, but they wanted more. They wanted more. They had a successful client who's just started a business and he's making an absolute killing, and they wanted in. They wanted to be a part of that. 
They're chasing the wealth, lured in by the sensuality of it. So they go into business with this client and break all the rules. They go into business with someone they didn't know in a business they had no experience with. It started off amazingly. They made a mozza, huge money. But it went away as quickly as it came. Ended up in court a hair's width away from bankruptcy. Gone in a flash. Verse 17. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. As fast as it comes is as quickly as it can go. Even faster. All the wealth of Babylon. One hour. All her wealth, power, Riches, gone. The picture we get in verses 20 to 24 is this empty ghost city. One hour. Utility of wealth. All that time, all the energy, all the risk, all the investment. One hour. See you later. This is the end game for those intoxicated with the promiscuity of luxury, power, and riches. So flee from it. Get out of Babylon. But I don't think this is the end of the message. It's not just a message of judgment's coming, leg it, run. There's actually something better to flee to. There's actually something better to be pulled in by and drawn into. We actually flee, not because of the judgment, but because there is a better wealth that we can go to. And this will be our final point, a short one. So you're looking at verses, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10 for this. As I said, in verse 20 to 24, there's a picture of chapter 18, sorry, there's a picture of a desolate city. And that gets contrasted then with uh, chapters 19, verses 1 to 10. We have this city, it's lifeless, joyless, silent, empty, ruined, a ghost city. And then there is this interruption of immense sound that just comes into the passage. A roar of multitudes. Marin and I went to the World Cup game where Sam, scores, Sam Kerr scored that absolute belter. I don't know if people were watching the Women's World Cup. I was. And the stadium erupted. It erupted with this crazy roar, indistinguishable screaming. But you, you couldn't miss the joy, right? But here, this roar is not indistinguishable. The roar is in complete unison such that John can make out the words which say, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Praise to God for judging the prostitute. It goes up. Why? Because she has led so many away from God. Ultimately, it's not just wealth that's in view in all these chapters. It's what it does. And it draws people away from God. This this Babylon, this prostitute, she has benefited from the persecution of Christians for the pursuit of of power and wealth. It's no surprise that the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. Because ultimately, she doesn't just represent wealth in Revelation here. The prostitute represents evil, but it's personified as the sensual allure of wealth and power. 
So the joy for those who flee from this allure, who, who, who flee from the allure of wealth and the evil that it produces, is to praise God, to see the evil finally judged. Because when we run away from evil, it chases us. It tries to run us down, tries to bring us back in. But God wins in the end. The Lamb wins in the end. God's people, those who flee Babylon, will be vindicated. And that is the first reward that we see in chapter 19, rejoicing over the, evil, the judgment of evil. Now, the passage concludes with a wonderful picture. And I think this is where we find the answer to how we might flee from the pool of wealth and power. I think it's the better wealth that God provides. And it's so powerful. And it needs to be powerful, right? Because... The allure of the world and the materialistic culture we live in is strong and it's powerful. And I'm, I'm confident most of us would have felt that at some time in our life. It's a strong pull. I heard a story of a missionary who was in the Congo for 37 years. <coughs> Excuse me. Dangerous place for a Christian. And she was confronted with many difficult things. So when she came back to Australia, to, when she finished in the Congo and came back to Australia, she was asked apparently often, it must be so hard. How did you do it? How did you survive as a Christian for 37 years in the Congo? It must be so hard. And this is the story she shared in response to that sort of questioning. She told about a time that one day she went down to the supermarket in Brizzy, in Brisbane, to get peanut butter. And there were so many choices, so many different jars of peanut butter, butter that she was frozen with indecision. Took her 30 minutes to pick a jar of peanut butter. She ended that story by saying, You have so many distractions here. You have so many distractions here. I might have been faced with AK 47s in the Congo, but there are barely any distractions that pull me away from Jesus. You have so many distractions here. Peanut butter. The allure of the prostitute is so strong. John meets the prostitute. He's astonished. He's drawn in. We need something more powerful to pull us out. It isn't just about fighting harder. It's about finding something better. In verses 7 to 9 of 19, I think we get three things that offer a stronger pull, but again, we'll focus on one of them, one that I think will be particularly helpful for our struggle against the pull of materialism, and that's verse 8. But I'm going to read from 7 as well. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. See, for, for us, in a culture full of materialism, there is better matter, there is better clothing. There is greater luxury. I think the allure of luxury often is to cover up our flaws, right? We try to make things look better because we hate looking bad. We can't escape our sin. We can't escape our defects, our deficiencies, our rebellion against God. So in actuality, what we try to do is cover it up with gadgets, with clothing, with whatever, whatever it is. I want to look cool. I want to seem important. I want to be considered up to date. I want to be eco-friendly. I want my luxury to make me seem better than I am. 
However, all the luxury in the world cannot change the human heart. It cannot make the reality better. It just covers things up. But the blood of the Lamb can. The blood of the Lamb can make you pure and clean. The Lamb that was slain can make you so clean that when you do good, in heaven those deeds will be the most pure clothes. They will be the most expensive linen. Verse 8 tells us. You see, the purity of the clothes in heaven are deeds done in Christ. The good we do in Jesus is preparing for us a greater luxury than we can imagine. Now, it's not earning us salvation. Jesus has done that by dying in our place. But his death in our place is the nappy sand that makes our good deeds pure. His sacrifice makes it possible to live a righteous life. It's important that we do not get that the wrong way around. Because Jesus has washed us clean, he actually enables the good things that we do to be ordered rightly. So now that we are clean from sin, our deeds are producing for us a heavenly outfit that is more glorious and luxurious than any we can imagine. An outfit that won't have its color fade, that won't get ruined by oil stains or rips or tears. This is all possible because no longer, no longer is the luxury trying to cover up an unclean heart, but the outfit is actually highlighting the purity of our heart. Our deeds done in Christ reflect the heart that He has transformed, that He has made new. Don't fall for the trap of pursuing a life of the material, of things that are going to fade away. Don't let yourself be tempted by the sensuality of things of this life, but be drawn in and follow the pull of an eternity of perfected luxury. Luxury that is for our good. Luxury that doesn't just cover up flaws, but that represents and reflects the new heart which only the Lamb, Jesus Christ, can give. You see, the offer of God is a better wealth, a luxury that is not a futile attempt to cover up a broken heart, but a luxury that reflects the purity of the heart Jesus Christ gives when He dies the death we deserve, as He pays the penalty for our sin. Instead of covering up our sin, Jesus deals with it. Pursue adornment and luxury that reflects a new heart, not a luxury that seeks to cover up a stained one. The good news of Jesus offers a far better reality. Instead of an insecurity we attempt to cover up, he offers a security of a pure heart that only he can give. Instead of a body we're ashamed of, he offers adornment of righteousness. Instead of a lifestyle we're embarrassed by, he offers a wedding with the lamb. Instead of an anxiety about appearance, he offers pure linen made to represent a pure and righteous heart that he alone gives through his death and resurrection. The pull of the world is so strong and enticing and alluring but God has something so much better to offer. So flee from the prostitute to the better wealth that God provides. Will you join me as I pray?
Father, thank you that you have paid the price for us, that you have died in our place, so that we do not need to follow the wealth of Babylon, which leads to judgment, but we can follow the wealth you offer, an eternity with you, peace with you forever, knowing that because of what you've done in us, we can live lives of righteousness that will lead to greater luxury that only you can provide. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.